With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. A special weekend edition of the VanCast. Jeff Patterson in Vancouver. Thomas Drantz is in Edmonton. The Canucks are up 2-0 on the St. Louis Blues. The VIPs demanding bonus content here, and that's what we're all about, uh, Drancer. In fact, I was thinking about this. Really, you and I are the Bo Horvat of podcasts these days, that uh, we just keep coming at people in waves, and there's nothing they can do to stop us. Yeah, and, you know, everyone expects us now to go blocker side low, so we'll switch <laughs> it up. We'll switch it up, shoot five hold a day, get get directly to the truth. Uh, the truth of the matter is that the Canucks have been the better team five on five. Uh, they managed to beat the St. Louis Blues again in a game that was abysmally officiated, I thought. And look, good for them. I mean, the way that that game was called, I think, favored the Blues in a variety of ways. Not just the missed high stick on the Blues' second goal. Not just the fact that I still have no idea how Jay Beagle... Like, Jay Beagle was assessed and it was called double minors for roughing in the building. Now, the game sheet has two separate roughing minors. But nonetheless, that was about as confusing a penalty. Like, and I'm not even just talking about the fact that Usually you see one guy, two guys sent in a situation like that. I'm, I'm not even just talking about the fact that the hit was unpenalized, that Jay Beagle objected to. I'm just talking about the fact that double minor for roughing doesn't really exist as a call in the rule book. And that's what, like, it was announced as a call that doesn't exist in building. Game sheet reflects two separate roughing. Pe- like, I just, I still don't really understand what happened because a double minor for roughing literally doesn't exist in the NHL rule book. I'm honestly still baffled by it. The, you know, you, you put all that together, a uh, ticky-tack call against Horvat, a ticky-tack call against Roussel, whatever, those go both ways. That Sutter thing, the missed high stick on the goal against, you can, you know, I, I was surprised, actually, that Travis wasn't a little bit, you know, Travis Green, Canucks head coach, wasn't a little more upset about it, but he did sort of make it plain how he felt post-game, oh, right? Where, yeah, where I mean, I, said, look, I, I tried to you know, bait the hook a little yeah, bit, and and I, I think he said exactly what he wanted to say without saying anything at all. Oh, totally, and he had another comment about ice time where he said, you know, we had penalties, and it wasn't that we took penalties, it was the penalties called against us, right? Like, yeah. he did sort of, and, and that was a completely different topic. Green didn't have to say it publicly. He didn't like how the game was officiated. We all could tell. Um, you could tell watching. <laughs> you could tell watching from home. You could certainly tell on that Zoom call. Uh, and by the way, I think he was right. Like I, I think that was uh, an abysmally officiated game. And I, I do want to start there just because I, I do. Fans, fans, listeners, people who people who hear us. When have we ever talked about the officiating again? Like almost, you know, you and I are not yeah. the types of people who really drill down on this. Nope. Uh, but that game was a standout, and it, and it deserves to be mentioned off the hop because it was uh, abysmal. And the fact that the Canucks managed to nonetheless, you know, capitalize on their power play opportunities, 
uh, win the game off just an unbelievable bank pass, like a completely sumptuous uh, bank pass from Quinn Hughes and, and Bo Horvat continuing to just fill the net. As Elias Pettersson, like another two-point game, quiet, a quiet two-point game for Elias Pettersson, struggling at five-on-five, five, but man, he's like an atom bomb at, at, on the power play right now, uh, and he deflected a goal in two. Uh, look, Canucks are up 2 nothing. They deserve to be. They've been the better team. It's wild. Yeah, like the Blues, you know, their big talking point coming out of the first game was goaltending and discipline. They cut their penalties in half, and the Canucks' power play is just, like, it's simply a stone-cold killing machine right now. Uh, Five for nine in the series against the defending Stanley Cup champs. And so, you're right, like, Ryan O'Reilly continues to smother Elias Pettersson at evens. And if that's Pedersen struggling, he's got three points in the two games. The power play has just been lights out. The saucer pass to Pearson. Uh, Pedersen bunting the puck out of midair. Like, he's leaving his mark. But, look, we can't really go a whole lot further without talking about Bo Horvat. Like, I was joking off the top that, you know, he, he is unstoppable. And there doesn't seem that there's anything that the Blues can do. I don't imagine that was in their game plan coming in. I know they were aware of Bo Horvat. But, like, I thought the Vince Dunn turnstile the other night was going to be the highlight reel of these playoffs for Bo Horvat. And then he goes and he ups the ante not once, but twice. You know, we could talk about the winner and the play that Hughes made, but you know, there are moments and you've done such a good job of sort of detailing and documenting the sounds of the game. Like from your perspective, just kind of walk me through what you see when Horvat has that much open ice on that opening goal. And he talked about how he identified there were two forwards back. Like you talk about a player's awareness, like these are elite level guys. And I think that was such a huge part of that goal was he recognized that it was Shen and Schwartz back. It wasn't Pareko and Peter Angelo, two guys that play defense for a living. And Horvat exploited them. He did, yeah. And honestly, the the um, the sound of the second goal was the one that really stood out to me. The first goal you know, was it, it, it had been sort of just a ticky-tack moment in time. Like, this was shortly after an Antoine Roussel slash took the Canucks off the power play. Um, I didn't really sort of... I, the Canucks didn't like that call, but they, at the time anyway, at that point in the game, were still sort of turning the other cheek in terms of working the refs. Um, you know, the Blues had the puck, and, and I just remember seeing Horvat sort of often make that first move, and I noticed, I will say, because I've got, I've you know, you've got the advantage over over players who are clo- on the ice or, or coaches who are closer to it of being that up high, but I, I could see that it was, that it was Jaden Schwartz back, and I thought it would be interesting, but I was shocked that the patented Bo Horvat toe drag worked for the Blues again. Like, they just saw it, you know? <laughs> you, they just saw it. And, yeah. um, you know, when he when he walked him, uh, you know, still, I didn't know that there would be a goal. Like, he didn't look to me like he was in a great shooting position. He was getting in pretty quick. And, but after the move, after the move, I will say that was a moment where Farhan and I, you know, 10 meters away from each other, sort of cast a, cast a look over. And then we, and then we looked back. And after Horvat, uh, Horvat shot it, Farhan had a moment to be, to say to me, did he score? Because we couldn't quite see if he'd beat him. And I, I, yeah, he scored. And we were just like, wow, like, wow, what an unbelievable play. Um, yeah, Horvat's, Horvat's shooting fireballs out of Zeiss or something right now. It's insanity. And, and you know, built for the playoffs. Uh, Bo Horvat's built for the playoffs. That was a, a talking point from the Canucks, right? Like, from Tanner Pearson, from Travis Green, both sort of intimating it. 
um, you know, he's done this. He's done this before at the OHL level. He he certainly had a really good playoffs as a rookie back in 2015. Uh, this is a different thing entirely, and and I do think there's more going on than just Horvat shooting out of his mind. Um, but there's some bounces here. Like he's definitely he's definitely had a, a good run of luck. He's definitely oh, yeah. he's definitely playing awesome. Like he's playing really good hockey. Period. Right. Like that's the other. That's a, an important thing here. There's more. There's a lot more than luck going on. There's a deployment change. There's there's a ton of context. And it's fascinating to see. But really, at the end of the day, this is a playoff time of year, right? This is not a time of year to worry about sustainability. This is what have you done? What Bo Horvat's done? Nothing short of remarkable. Right, and he's a big part of the power play, and we know that he's become the power play ace. But you know, we've also talked about five on five scoring like all of a sudden he's now becoming a five on five guy again which is I think you know that's a great sign for him and for the hockey club and obviously a shorthanded goal as well so he's getting it done uh in all facets for this hockey club right now and special teams I mean special teams are carrying the day as they did so often for the Canucks through the regular season uh you know can it continue can the Blues make adjustments on their penalty kill we'll see but if you're the Vancouver Canucks like that top group and I know Pearson scored and that's a second unit goal although I thought that was really cool the Tanner Pearson power play goal because of all the penalties early in the second period and all the penalty killing time guys like Hughes and Pedersen they hadn't seen the ice much and so they get themselves a power play the top unit starts they don't convert there's a little bit of a change like Vertanen came over the boards Pearson came over the boards but Hughes and Pedersen stayed out and I love that like get those guys feed your best players their ice time any way you can and sure enough, it's Pedersen finding Pearson in the slot for that. You know, the saucer pass was incredible because it was almost like a half volley. Like, it lands right flat just as Pearson is in the, you know, in the shooting motion. Like, that was an incredible sequence and an incredible goal. It was an incredible sequence and an incredible goal. And that's another one. I don't know why I'm doing this. Is, this is like the Farhan cast because I'm just, I'm just explaining Farhan's reaction to goals now. But, but, after, <laughs> like but, after, but after that one, Farhan looked over to me and said, Jake Vertanen was on the ice. <laughs> and like no context beyond that. He just mentioned it to me. And I was like, yeah, he was. <laughs> oh, so good. Hey, look, you know what? I just looked something up while you talked and it's a good stat. So I'm going to bring it up. So, Natural Stat Trick, the nerd stat site that I love, that I lean on heavily, uh, has a stat called Expected Goals. Expected Goals are very simple based on historic goal locations and shot location data. It suggests how many goals you should have scored, uh, regardless of what the actual result of that shot was. Uh, It does this for teams, uh, but it also does this for players. And based on Expected Goals, Bo Horvat. Have, you know, has outscored his expected goals by 2.7. Like he's only uh, he's only recorded 3.3 expected goals so far in the playoffs. However, that's the most expected goals at all strengths by any player still in the postseason uh, to this point. So um, that's good. Bo Horvat's generating a ton of looks offensively, whether he's getting bounces or not. Uh, that's enormously impressive. <laughs> like no one, no one else has created as many uh, goals that should have gone in as Bo Horvat among players still playing in the NHL postseason. Uh, tremendous stuff. And and you know what? I, I do think, too, like his on-ice numbers are good. The Blues are, are not – like he's coming out ahead of that matchup. Like think about how many times you've heard Braden Shen's name in this series, right? You know, like you just haven't. Yep. You just haven't yep. thought about him much. Um, well, he's Bo Horvat's primary matchup, so – 
Uh, I think that's telling you a lot about why the Canucks are coming out ahead in this series and, and coming out ahead in terms of, you know, not the flow of play, but in terms of who's generating more dangerous chances more consistently. Not just winning games either. I'm talking about who's the better team objectively, five on five, uh, and and in all strengths in this series. Like it's been Vancouver. Uh, St. Louis has had their zone time, and they've done that despite the Pedersen line sort of. You know, I don't want to. I don't want to say getting fed their lunch, but spending way too much time in their own end, not spending a ton of time generating the types of looks we're used to the lot of line generating. Um, you know, the fact that Horvat's being cleaning Braden Shen's clock at five on five, the fact that the Canucks bottom six is holding their own. Uh, those are huge reasons that have permitted the Canucks to build this 2-0 lead. Yeah. And I think goaltending too. I mean, Jordan Bennington's yeah. not, he's not where he was like the team in front of him locked in as they ran to the Stanley cup last spring. They're just not. And he's a part of that. I mean, the Canucks have beaten for nine goals now. And there's all this discussion about, you know, will it be Jake Allen in game three? And, and, you know, have we seen the last of Jordan Bennington, mm-hmm. you know, nine goals in two games. That's too many. You, you, we can talk about the goals and, you know, obviously the stature one in game one was a bad one. I'm not sure that there were bad goals, but he's got to make saves and he's not making saves right now. And so that's another advantage to the Vancouver Canucks. I also thought it was really important that, you know, these guys got it done as quickly as they did in overtime. It wasn't 11 seconds, obviously, but it was five minutes and 55 seconds and not 55 minutes because Tyler Myers was gone. He didn't come back. I don't think he was going to come back if that game continued on as a marathon affair. And, you know, Alex Edler and Chris Tanev keep giving the Canucks what they can, but, you know, Edler finishes the night up over 28 minutes. You know, they were down to 5D. I think you're, you're playing with a little bit of fire at that point, leaning on these veterans as heavily as they uh, they had to, and again, some just heavy, heavy penalty-killing minutes that uh, these guys, I know they gave up the one power play goal, but it was more about the, the five kills that they got done, because I thought the penalty kill was terrific, and I know uh, you touched on, on Tyler Mott last night with us on the radio, and um, you know, enough to go around, but I just thought that was important, that you know, if you had a chance to end it before fatigue set in on your defense... Like, that was a concern of mine, that the Canucks might run into trouble. And and look, we don't know about Myers, and we probably won't until game time on Game 3 uh, Sunday night. But, you know, they may have to, they they may be forced to make adjustments in terms of personnel based on the availability of Tyler Myers. Yeah, and, and they already have, right? Troy Stetcher, 18.07 at 5-on-5, five five, right? He Only yeah. Edler played more minutes 5-on-5. Five five. Now, partly that's because Tanev kills so much, but Troy Stetcher also was killing, right? Troy Stetcher was also killing with with Tanev uh, on occasion, right? They were <laughs> they were definitely sort of piecing it together as as best they could. Now the good thing for the Canucks is, I actually think Troy Stetcher's underrated, you know, in terms of his ability to impact the game as a top four guy, uh, not not just based on the underlying data where he's been in matchup roles the past two years and tends to do okay against elite competition. But this is the guy who, when he's on the ice, the Canucks have scored the fewest, uh, surrender the fewest goals against five on five. That was true this season. That was true the season prior. Like teams just don't ding the Canucks for as many goals against when Stetcher's on the ice. And, And I know, you know, because of his size and the fact that he can lose battles at the net front, like it doesn't always look pretty. But there is no questioning this guy's defensive acumen. He is really, really awesome in that role. And 
if he's pressed into you know a higher rate of duty, like I do think he can handle it. Like I, I think he can do a really good job in that position. Um, but he'll need to, right? Like that's the other thing. He'll absolutely need to. The Canucks will be leaning heavily on him in the event that Myers misses some time here, uh, and and hopefully he doesn't. You know, I, I do think too. Myers was having a really good game. Like Myers was, Myers looked fast last night, right? I think about that chance he created, uh, but I think about just his ability to move the puck. Like if you are losing Myers and you're replacing him with. Jordy Ben, for example, on his right side, you are losing a fair bit of mobility on, on the back end. Like Myers is one of the, he's not Hughes, he's not Stetcher, but he's the next guy in terms of who can, you know, move the puck with his feet, uh, sort of put some pressure on defenders in terms of that side of the game. Um, that's a big loss for this Canucks team. They're not the most mobile group outside of, you know, the fact that's disguised by Hughes' sort of warp speed worm game, but nonetheless, uh, they'd, they'll miss Myers. Like, Myers' absence, I know he gets a lot of flack. I know he's taken a lot of penalties. I don't think he's been at his best necessarily in the playoffs to this point. But um, they, will miss, they will miss his minutes a ton, and they will miss his mobility in the event that they'll be without him for a bit. Right, and I also think that, you know, for all these reasons that we've talked about, the St. Louis Blues not being on their game and motivation and all those types of things. You know, I look at a guy like Tarasenko. Like, I, I see he's in the lineup, but he's not Vladimir Tarasenko as we know him, no. right? Like, no, and he's got surgery. injury things too. Yeah, yeah. That's right. what I mean. So, you know, he's having trouble getting his game up. You know, you're, you're talking about Myers coming out. Myers, who has played, I think he missed one game for the Cubs, but he's been there every game and obviously every game here in the bubble where Jordy Ben hasn't played an NHL game since, God, I'd have to go look it up because he was always out of the lineup yeah. as a healthy scratch. You know, it, it, it's not just the difference of Myers out, Ben in. It's a, a game-ready, battle-tested Tyler Myers against a guy who probably is going to play on his offside and hasn't played an NHL game in forever. Like, that's a yeah. big ask for Jordy Ben. Yeah, since, he, since the Arizona game, which was three games before the pause, right? That was the 2-1 the loss to Arizona was his last game. Um, and, you know, did he play five, maybe six games after Christmas total? Right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're yeah. right. You're right. Like, he has not played with the regularity that Tyler Myers has and missed most of phase three, right? Like, I don't think he was in any of the scrimmages because he went back to Dallas. So, no, you're right. That's that's your, that's a huge point and, and a massive one because – you know that's gonna that's gonna dramatically impact the Canucks for sure in the event that Myers is gone. It's it's you know wild for a player who's been you know a, a bit of a whipping boy locally, right? I, I think fair to say about Tyler Myers, including the you know rush of minors that he's taken in the playoffs. Um, but man, they his absence will be felt sorely in the event that he's unable to go for Game Three. Seven games after Christmas is the official total for. So, so I was only one off. Yeah, we'll give it's it pretty to close. you. There's, there's always the plus or minus one. Yeah. You get the, yeah, yes, right. the, 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 yeah, the slight the variance. Grace. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, look, it's a Canucks podcast, and, and we focus on the Canucks, but it's a series against the Blues. Like, what what do you see or don't you see with Tarasenko? Like, has, I know Stetcher coughed that one up to him up the gut like five minutes into the game. That was about the only time that I really noticed him. I know he was on the ice when they scored the tying goal. I see they've changed the tying goal as well, that uh, it was Perron in the building, but... Uh, Schwartz, Schwartz gets credit for it. Now yeah. it was the double deflection. It went off Perron and then off Schwartz. Um, so Tarasenko had an assist and that gets taken away. But like, have you noticed Vladimir Tarasenko at all? 
No, not really. And, you know, I noticed Schwartz, Perron, O'Reilly last night, right? They were dominant. <laughs> Um, they've right. been they've been dominant all series, but the Shen line's been quiet, right? And they moved they changed things up. Like Schwartz played with uh, Perron and O'Reilly, and you know Schwartz, uh, sorry Shen played with Bozak and Tarasenko, and yeah, I didn't think the Shen line was particularly good. Like they were fine. Uh, I I don't think they were bad by any means, uh, but they certainly weren't on their game the way we'd expect. And, you know, I just don't I, – I just th- see that as a matchup that's being won by Horvat. And, you know, overall – and this includes the O'Reilly line too. Like, you love the way that the O'Reilly line's just demolishing play overall, right? Like, they are not giving up anything because they have the puck the entire time they're in the – they're, you know, on the ice five on five. Like, they are absolutely, <laughs> absolutely pinning – Pedersen's line shift after shift uh, to the point where I do think the Canucks will have to find a way to protect the Pedersen line as this series shifts and gives Green last change, right? Like, I I would think that they will keep Pedersen away from O'Reilly as much as they can in games three and four. Uh, But, you know, other than that, I just see this Blues team generating zone time and not generating a ton of crazy looks, you know? You think about, like, there were periods, single periods of Canucks games during the season where they'd give up, like, 10 chances that I was just like, oh, my God, oh, my God, how did Markstrom keep that out, you know? Like, that's the experience of watching the Canucks in the regular season. It was just, you know, a litany of high-end chances against at all moments. It was exciting, but it was crazy. (laughs) And I, you know, I struggle to really think about the Blues, like, other than that Sammy Blay chance, which was created by a high stick on Edler, you know, I just can't think of other chances that the Blues had like that. You know, there, there was, I guess, the one where Markstrom had a puck handling error, and there was the one late that Elias Pettersson saved. But it's like, you know, I, I can think of three chances in the game, one of which I think was dubious because of a missed call, right? And yep. if I go back to game one, it's the same story, right? It's just like point shot... Tons of pressure resulting in a point shot, you know, tons of offensive movement by the Blues resulting in a chance where a Canuck had a stick in the lane and it didn't really get off cleanly or Markstrom saw it or, you know, I just can't think of those crazy rush chances or those insane Markstrom saves. Like Markstrom's played well. He's, he's controlling things and keeping the game in front of him. And, and you know, other than some puck handling adventures, I, I think he's been on it. But uh, so I'm not trying to take anything away from him. It's just this hasn't been the... You know, well, Markstrom made 25 saves, but those 25 saves, oh boy, <laughs> that it just hasn't been that serious. Like the Blues haven't generated the great A's that you know we kind of expect from them, and that we kind of expect the Canucks to surrender. You got to give the Canucks a lot of credit; they've looked more organized than at any point in the season throughout this run. Right, like even Game One against the Wild, but certainly on this five-game winning streak, they've added a solidity to their defensive game um, that, you know, is pretty commendable and and I think has powered them in a lot of ways to what they've accomplished here in the first, you know, 12 days of bubble life. Right. Or 10 days of bubble life, I guess. And the numbers sort of bear that out, Tom. When you think that, you know, it took till game four against Minnesota for them to give up an even strength goal and 
at those, they were bad ones on Markstrom, right? Like some weak mm-hmm. angle, short angle shots that don't generally go in. Right. Two games into this series with St. Louis, the Blues have scored two five-on-five five goals. Blay, as you talked about, Thomas got the stick up into Edler's face. And mm-hmm. uh, Edler still, even with like a stick in his face, probably has to make a better play than he did. But yeah. whatever. Uh, but the other five-on-five five so, I guess scored, I guess the point is, is when I first saw it, I thought it was a pizza. And when I saw the replay, I <laughs> right. thought, okay, I'm not going to crap on Edler for that. You know, like right. that's, but, yeah, but that, that's really it, the... Throwing it into the middle is never a good idea, even if like you're wearing somebody's stick across your face. But just back totally. to the five-on-five five thing... It was a hot like, and ready. <laughs> in, it was. Uh, in game one, their only five-on-five five goal came off an offensive zone face-off for the Canucks, like a totally broken play, right? In a breakaway, right. and it was you know great speed from Schwartz, but that's not your prototypical five-on-five five build-up zone time and everything else. So when you look at control of possession and puck, and uh, like all the things that the Blues are doing, they're not translating it into uh, any kind of even-strength offense. And, and I'm with you. Like I, I think you do have to give the Canucks credit, and Travis Green's talked about this, that... You know, that four-month layoff, like, he challenged his players to be better, but he talked about this on the Zoom the other day. Like, he challenged his players to be better when they came back, but he also challenged his coaching staff to, you know, figure out the areas of weakness, and I think we all know that it was play in their own zone. It was how permissive they were, allowing teams to attack and gain the zone uh, with ease and then set up and create all those scoring chances you talk about. And it does look and feel like there's a different defensive posture for the Canucks here in the bubble than we saw in those 69 regular season games. Yeah, there's the, the it's you know it's one thing to do the work and and you get credit from me for doing the work anyway, but you get double credit if you can execute it. <laughs> you know, like if you actually are able to come back from the break, go through phase three training camp, and look like a different team defensively, like wow, that's that's a pretty that's a that's a pretty remarkable coaching achievement, but it's also a pretty remarkable achievement for a young team to be able to process, uh, integrate, and get results from that work and information. Uh, you know, wild. But, you know, that's how you take advantage. That's how you come back from quarantine as a team that looks fit, you know, like that looks improved. Um, it's enormously impressive. Enormously impressive, honestly. It's it's a wild thing to have accomplished. And, and you know, the Blues for their part, right? I, I mean, I don't think we've seen a Blues team that's lied down by any means. Not but we at have all. Seen, not at, not all. at all. Like, I'm, again, there's a lot of welts, a lot of injuries. Uh, a lot of Canucks who I'm sure have spent are spending time on the table today uh, whose bodies can attest to the fact that the Blues have brought it physically. What the Blues, though, have looked like to me a little bit, and and Pietrangelo sort of the poster boy of this for me, is they've looked like a raw nerve, all anger and frustration and very little focus and discipline. And, you know, maybe they got the benefit of the calls in game two. I'd certainly suggest they did. But nonetheless, you know, I think about, like, Pietrangelo lost it when he took a dumb late penalty in game one. Well, he should have taken a dumb late penalty in game two, right? He risked it. With, you know, a, a cross check to Tyler Myers that was retaliatory, and a punch to the back of the head to Mott. Sorry, it was to Mott. Um, shortly thereafter, like, if you're not Alex Pietrangelo, superstar who took over Game Seven against the St. Louis Blues, and that's not Tyler Mott, fourth liner, you know, that's a penalty every time, every time, and to risk that at that point in the game, just shows me, anyway. Um, you know whether you get away with it or not it, it's bad process it shows me that you're not quite dialed in you're you, you're not 
quite uh, the master of your own domain, as it were. Um, I don't think the Blues are the master of their own domain so far in this series. I, I feel like their frustration, anger, I don't feel like it's channeled. I feel like it's just a little bit... I mean, it is by Perron. Perron's a genius. But, uh, but other than that... Right, like Perron's just walking around. He knows exactly when he can hit Markstrom. He knows exactly how to get Jake Vertanen to retaliate. Like he, he's so calculated um, that I was stunned when he got a penalty for taking the extra shot at Elias Pettersson. <laughs> I was stunned by that. Um, but other than other than you know Perron, other than that O'Reilly line, in general, it just feels like the Blues haven't dialed, reined it in, and used some of that anger and energy as productively as they could uh just they just feel like raw nerves raw frustration on the ice against the canucks right now now the officials had to call that one on perron like that was so textbook interference and i agree with you like he's been effective he's on the score sheet he's under the Canucks skin all that kind of stuff but you know Pedersen did so well to seal off the boards to make sure the puck got outside the zone after some pressure he follows it out to center you know he's kind of on his knees and then perron just you know <laughs> Pounds him and, and doesn't allow him to get back up. I mean, that was textbook interference. It, it was, but but if, if if it had happened on the back of a Pedersen creative offensive play, it wouldn't have been called. The reason it got called is that Pedersen had just done some workmanlike work. You know what I'm saying? They're like, no, you can't. <laughs> like, skill players don't get the benefit of the doubt, especially skilled players who are slight, typically, in playoff hockey. The reason Pedersen did there was because he just made a hard, solid defensive play along the wall. So in that situation, they get protected. It's just so stupid, but it but it's cool. how it works. And I love the karma that, you know, it's Pedersen that ends up scoring on that power play as well, right? Like, that just kind of seemed And the fitting. goal celebration, Perron skating across the ice, and Pedersen usually spends a little more time with his teammates. I think he wanted to skate by Perron. And like do the glove taps at the bench a little bit, a little bit like sooner before Perron could quite get off the ice. Like I, I've, I, I was noting it because I wondered if he'd say anything because you could see I, I saw in the replay on the television, but you could see the reaction, the emotion from Pedersen when he scored, right? But I, I, w- I was wondering if he was going to say something to Perron. He didn't, but I do think he rushed to get the glove taps in um, so that it happened in closer proximity to Perron before he could settle into the Blues bench. I do think that that happened. I do think he he had a point to prove there. I love it. I love yeah. it. Like, it was it, awesome. Just, no, I mean, the guy's just so competitive. We know that after two seasons, and everything's calculated. So that doesn't surprise me in the least that, you know, score the goal and just make sure that Perron knows that you know that he was the guy in the box, <laughs> that, you know, yeah. that you drew the penalty, like, I love it. No, yeah. that's so good. I, 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 so good. I, and I, the moment it happened and the moment I, cause I could hear him before the music started, just I could hear him sort of roar. Um, and so I, so I looked. I, I, honestly, I watched him very intently. And I was disappointed in that there was no, like, no signal or anything to Perron. But he did get to the bench a little bit faster than he usually would have for the glove taps. And, and that was something I did note um, because it did, you know, he did skate just behind Perron as Perron stepped off the ice to start the glove taps with his teammates. And, and you know what? That's that's a key thing. Like, the Blues are obviously – we know how the Blues are going to play, right? We know how the Blues are going to play. We know how they're going to run after uh, Patterson. We know how they're going to have to – we know how they're going to run at Hughes. And, you know, the Canucks power play is the great difference maker there, right? If you want to get the Blues off their game, if you want to make them think twice about playing that way, if you want to make Perron think twice about taking that extra shot – 
Like, that's how you do it. Uh, to this point, obviously, based on how Pietrangelo played late, based on the way that they slashed Louis Erickson's stick out of his hands um, with 30 seconds to go off that final draw, like, obviously the Blues haven't shown any inclination to adjust. Um, but they might have to as they get ser- as they get more serious and as they begin to contemplate, you know, life not on the brink yet, but certainly in a hole uh, where they're going to have to play really, really well in back-to-back games on Sunday and Monday just to sort of get back into the series and preserve their playoff life here. Um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll sort of see how this goes. But I, I, they just look to me like an angry team, a uh, frustrated team. And, you know, there's a... a part of me that thinks that makes them a dangerous team like I would I would be stunned if the first period of game three isn't their absolute best shot right I, I just I think the Canucks are going to see the Blues absolutely take their best shot early in game three and I wonder though if that comes with a vulnerability on the back end which is that if the Canucks can keep it close uh, they might be positioned to to score a pretty decisive knockout blow like a, a heartbreaking blow um, you know, if they can keep it close, take that punch and throw one back uh, in game three. I'm really fascinated for the psychology of, of that all, especially with back to back games on Sunday and Monday. Well, just from where I sit, like the Blues better bring their best here pretty soon because they're running out of time. Right. Like mm. you can't wait for game four if you're down three nothing to think now is the time to bring the best. So I, I'm with you, but I'm not sure that we haven't seen pretty close to the best. Like. Again, I'm so with you. Like, this hasn't been the fact that the Canucks are taking advantage of a bad Blues team. Like, I do think the Blues have have played well and played hard, and it's just that the Canucks right now are dialed in, and they've got this good thing going. You can feel the mojo. Five straight wins here in the postseason. I know it's not about win streaks in the playoffs. It's just about, you know, can you get to four faster than your opponent? They're halfway there right now. And, you know, this thing... I mean, look, I'm not writing the St. Louis Blues off, but unless they figure some things out here, the series could be over way sooner than anybody had ever imagined at the outset. Uh, you know, and you talk about them being this exposed nerve. Uh, you know, the Canucks might be able to continue to agitate that nerve, and uh, we'll see because uh, the Blues are better with discipline in Game 2 than they were in Game Number 1, but they walk such a fine line. Like I could see them getting back into penalty problems as well, depending on the way the game is called and who's working it. And the Canucks probably feel that they are owed a couple of calls somewhere along the line. So, uh, you know, just as we wrap things up, what's your sense? I mentioned Jake Allen earlier. Do you think yeah. you think you see Jake Allen in game three? I think we could for sure. Right. I, I thought that uh, Craig Berube, I watched Craig Berube's comments late last night after I got home. Yeah. But Craig Berube certainly left the door open, didn't he? And you'd think if you've got a goaltender who's struggled the way that, you know, Allen, or sorry, the way that Bennington has struggled in game one and two, if you get asked the backup goalie question, you know, you you kind of try to build that guy up if you're not seriously considered considering going in a different direction, right? Like, um, you know, there's concern all around, right, was, was his quote, right? It's not just the goalie, it's the whole team. He did say that, but he also sort of suggested that it was a decision, something they discussed today, um, and that that was as far as he was going to go. There wasn't really the full-throated, like, you know, Jordan's the guy who carried us last year, and this is a champion with the mind of a champion. Like, you know, things happen, that's a really good team, but we believe in this guy. Like, there was no rally around the struggling goaltender. There was, you know, yeah, of course, there's concern with everybody, 
and we're going to discuss this as a staff tomorrow before we make a final decision. That, to me, leaves an awful lot of space for the Blues to, you know, potentially surprise us and, and go with Allen. I, I bet they'll stick with Bennington. I, I think they'll give him time to find his game. But, yeah, I mean, look, the Jordan Bennington thing's a story. And, and the Bo Horvat energy on that answer about the overtime goal, right? He expected me, I think, you know, I think he's seen me go blocker side low a few times, right? Like, <laughs> that's a confident man right there, right? Like, that's that's a guy who's feeling himself. Um, but, but I thought I thought that sort of said it all in terms of where Bennington's game's been at was, was that Horvat answer. And Horvat wasn't trying to dunk on him. Horvat was just walking us honestly through a play. Um, but but uh, boy, did that speak volumes. All right. If nothing else, we're here to serve the people, the VIPs. Uh, I saw a late night on Twitter because uh, you had posted the pick. I don't know if you've changed it to your profile pick, but you had the new mask going uh, and somebody yeah. wanted. How many how many masks do you have for this Edmonton junket? So I have six Whoa. basic. I, well, uh-huh. I have six basic black masks that aren't very breathable. Ah, so okay. I don't really like to wear them. And then I have three that I really like. Uh, I've got the blue one that everyone's seen. I've got a black version of that blue one. And then I've got my uh, flower print one, um, which, you know, I wore yesterday and I thought looked very fine in. Um, although, you know, I will say that photo makes it look like the mask's not very high on my nose. But it's because I'm talking. Like when you're talking in a mask, I've noticed this on my Zoom calls or, you know, when we do those Zooms. Um it starts to fall down a little bit, but also my nose is larger than people realize. Like there's still nose under that mask, people. I'm wearing it right. I just want to let everyone who's messaged me, including my sister, by the way, who was like, you're, you're not modeling good behavior. I'm like, Kate, like it's, it's fine. It's above my nose. Like my nose is large. Just relax. Um, so, you know, I'm on the phone. I'm talking. So it looks like it's riding down a bit, but it's actually still up there. Uh, and I just want to make that very plain. Uh, wear your mask. Wear your mask. Out, wear your mask indoors, everybody. Um, please do it for uh, for for us for everybody, so that we you know can continue to enjoy some of the phase three freedoms we've we've you know gotten used to here. Um, but yeah, and then I'm picking up two more today. I've got two masks. They just arrived. I just have to stop at the pharmacy and pick them up from my uh, from the UPS depot there. Um, but I got a houndstooth one, which I'm very excited because I'm obviously going to match that to my houndstooth um, pocket square. And yeah, nice. I, I, you know, nice. for the most part, for the most part, Jeb Vinnick's just been snapping photos of me without me, <laughs> my knowledge. Right. Uh, oh. But once I get my once I get my houndstooth one, I'll probably ask for one. Um, by the way, there's uh, <laughs> he in, snapping photos of me. Uh, that are completely me just watching, including one in which I was eating my chicken dinner, and I got to the leg, and I got to the leg of the chicken, and I and I'm, I like pull it up to my face, so I'm like mid chomp on a leg of chicken, and Jeff Vinick snaps this like really high res photo of me watching hockey with wide eyes with chicken in my mouth, um, and my hands around it. Um, Needless to say, that one did not go on social media. Oh, come on. <laughs> we I'll need text to see you. that one. Uh, 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 well, now now I'll let you tweet it. <laughs> oh, okay. I'll, I'll, I'll text it to you, Jeff, and um, you can you can use it to promote the VanCast in, uh, <laughs> when this goes up. But, uh, but yeah, no, I was not um, – I was – look, I'm a – I've always been honest with our listeners. I'm very vain, and I am not, not sharing a photo myself of me – you know, elbow deep in a leg of chicken. (laughs) 
The VIPs want unique content. They can't get anywhere else. Come on. Yeah, Bubble Chicken Boy. Um, yeah, there you go. I've, I've sent it to you uh, for your enjoyment. <laughs> you got to share that. Come on. No, I'm giving you permission to do so when the when okay. the podcast when the podcast comes out. You can you can tease uh, it as as the you know listen in today and get the inside story of of <laughs> Trance's chicken hockey night um, feast feast, <laughs> feast on this content <laughs> a, a more bre- more breakfast of champions here than that uh, than that um, Essa Lindell photo <laughs> yes yeah uh, no doubt. Uh, speaking of promoting the product, uh, with games back-to-back Sunday-Monday, we generally stay away from game days, so uh, we're on a roll here. We're pumping out uh, pods on the regular, but we'll go Tuesday. We'll be our next one. We'll take stock mm-hmm. of the series after game number four, so uh, we're giving you some special weekend content that'll get you up to game number three, but then uh, we'll go three and four without a podcast and get back at you on Tuesday and see where the series is and where it goes from there, before we run, Scott Burnside has a daily playoff edition of Two Man Advantage Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday. It's not really daily. There's a Wednesday that's missing there, but we'll take that up with Scott. Uh, anyways, you get four Two Man Advantages throughout the week during the 2020 Stanley Cup playoffs. Scott keeps you up to speed with all the NHL action, plus some of the Athletics' best hockey writers. They'll stop by and help break down the games and look ahead only at the Athletic. And check out our comment section for each podcast episode at the Athletic app. Great to support here during this playoff run. We can feel it. Uh, you know, there's just that energy and people can't get enough of the Canucks right now. And so it's fun to be a part of the community here with the VanCast. And don't forget to rate and subscribe the VanCast on Apple and click on theathletic.com slash Canucks for all of your Vancouver Canucks coverage. What are you working on? Uh, sneak peek at anything? You had the backup uh, emergency backup goalie piece that was up. That was... Yeah. Uh, some enjoyable reading. What, yeah, and uh, what else is Mike, in the chamber? Mike DiPietro was hilarious for that too. <laughs> uh, you know, he he talked about watching the overtime, his reaction to the Chris Tanev winner, right, and yeah. how hard he trained the next day because he was so hyped. Um, but he also he also told the story about how you know he's working out alone in the Phase Three facility with Glenn Carnegie, but also working out at the Canucks facility is Josh Levo. And they they're not working out together as as I understand it, um, but they're they're in touch. And you know he was joking about how Josh Levo after wa- they watched the Chris Tanev overtime winner that won the Canucks the series, uh, Josh Levo texted him and goes, "Thank God that happened quick. I'm so tired," <laughs> which I thought was a great little note. Um, and then I talked to Dan Hamhuis. I, I got Dan Hamhuis on the phone from Smithers, BC, um, where he is back with his family. And I've got a piece in which he talks at length about, you know, why he actually was grateful for his career to come to an end in the bubble. And additionally, um, you know, considers how the game changed over the course of his career um, and especially how defending changed uh, in terms of the emphasis on speed, how he's viewed that, you know, from, you know, within the game. Uh, over the course of a career in which he was probably a little bit ahead of it in terms of, you know, being that defense first guy whose defensive value was really based on mobility and, you know, intelligently transitioning the puck. Um, So I'm really excited to run that. I'll run that tomorrow uh, at The Athletic. All right, looking forward to that. Looking forward to games three and four back-to-back Sunday and Monday, and then we'll hit you with a new VanCast 
uh, on Tuesday. Again, we'll take stock of where the series is then. Uh, load up in your chicken in the meantime. Enjoy uh, the meal, everybody, and uh, we'll get back at you early next week. Enjoy the hockey games as well. For Drancer, it's Jay Patty. Special weekend edition of the VanCast here at The Athletic and TheAthletic.com.